I'm an alcoholic, and my name is Dottie High. I'm also a neurotic. Now, someone said to me not too long ago, why do you add another label to yourself? And I said, well, it's kind of nice to know who you are. I hated the word alcoholic. I wanted to be called a drunk or a lush. I thought those were much nicer. And my sponsor opened the book very ceremoniously one day, and she said, you know, honey, in this book it doesn't say any place you have to like it. But you damn well better accept it. So then when I found out I suffered from great emotional disorders, I didn't like that either. And again, with great ceremony, she opened the book and said, doesn't say any place in the book, you have to like it. You better accept it. So I began to accept the fact that I was neurotic. And it was a real help. When I accepted the fact that I was an alcoholic, I could do something about it. Now, a neurotic is a person who makes decisions that are destructive to themselves. How many neurotics you get out there today? <laughs> so when I discovered that, then I discovered I didn't have to do so many destructive decisions. I learned recently the difference between a psychotic and a neurotic. A psychotic says two and two are five. A neurotic says two and two are four, and I can't stand it. <laughs> so I qualify. First, let me thank the committee for the extreme privilege of being here. When I sat down on that tarmac yesterday, it was the first time I've ever set my foot in the land of Oz. And the reason I love you is because the thing was taken here, the, the, um, the Wizard of Oz, and Auntie M is the only one that ever pronounced my name right. She said, Dorothy. <laughs> Everybody else says Dorothy, and I don't like that. So I am really delighted, and I'm especially pleased to have such a good sister as my Alabama. We kind of tread the boards together at North Hollywood, and to have both of us here, you guys really got class. You really know what you're doing. You know that. <laughs> but it was a privilege also to meet my dear Martha, and it's amazing to me, I've done a lot of speaking all over the country, that five seconds after I got off the plane and put my arms around this beautiful woman, that we were lifelong friends. And I love her, and it's wonderful to be here. You know, when you've been around the program a little while, and you listen to the 12 steps read over and over and over, and the traditions read over and over and over, if you're not careful, you'll kind of go someplace in your mind. And so one day, about two or three years ago, I discovered that the 12 steps had been read, and I hadn't heard one word. And it kind of startled me, and I thought, hey, you, that's what got you sober. You better quit going someplace in your mind and start listening when the reading's been done. So I made a vow that night that I would close my eyes and I would listen. And I heard some remarkable things. The first thing I heard is someone say, the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop stinking. I thought that was very interesting. And then I heard someone say, animosity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions. <laughs> then the leader said, we'll have Joe read the 12 positions of alcoholism. <laughs> And someone was to read, many of us exclaimed, what an odor, I can't go through with it. <laughs> Please know, loved ones, I'm not making fun of anyone, but it, it always amazes me how we can say these things and keep reading right over and never realize, and I'm sure I'll do something like that today. But as I begin to collect these things, and they just delight me, I heard someone say, humbly asked him to restore our shortcomings. <laughs> I think too many of us do that. Then someone said, no human power could relieve alcoholism, but God could and would have caught. <laughs> I thought that was good. The last one I heard, I think, is the, is the gem. He says, our leaders are but twisted servants. They do not govern. 
President company, of course, is accepted. You understand that. You know, it's amazing to me, this dread disease, filthy, stinking, rotten, cunning, baffling, powerful disease that will take our minds or our lives and take our mind, the minds and lives of our fellows and our family. And yet nowhere in the world can you have so much fun getting well over any other dread disease as you can alcoholism. Just to think for a moment, supposing everybody in this room had been diagnosed as having cancer yesterday, and the doctor said, we can't cure this thing. But if you go to a meeting two or three nights a week, sit on some hard chairs, drink some lousy coffee, and lie to each other a little bit, that maybe we can arrest this disease. Dear ones, do you think it'd be too hot to go to a meeting? Or it'd be too cold to go to a meeting? Or you're too tired? Or there's a good television program on? Or you've been around for a few years now, you don't feel the need? If you thought for one minute that cancer would break out? No way. That's why I think not only are we alcoholic, but we're crazy. We're all just crazier than hell. You know that, don't you? And it's really true because, you see, we have really a dread disease. And in 1935, Dr. Silkworth gave us a term. He called it an allergy of the body, and it's a good word. An allergic reaction is a bad reaction to something taken through the mouth, breathed through the nostrils, or touched against the skin. And so we do have an allergy. But you know the thing that I loved because I, I guess I suffer from analysis paralysis. I, I have to know everything. And about, oh, I guess 15, 16 years ago, the Yale Institute on Alcoholic Studies, now they're the only medical group that I know today that's done anything on the research of the body of the alcoholic, to find out what's the difference between my body as an alcoholic and say Nell's body as a non-alcoholic. She's as crazy as I am. You heard that this afternoon when you were here. But what is the difference? Well, they took six people, six alcoholics, and six non-alcoholics. They hospitalized the alcoholics until by blood count and urinalysis, the alcohol is out of their system. They gave the 12 people a pint of whiskey to drink and they waited 24 hours from the last drink. They began testing again. In every one of the non-alcoholics, they found either totally out of the body or in the bladder, ready to be passed out in the urine. So they knew that the alcohol had burned up oxidized, gone through the kidneys, through the bladder, and out in the urine, as it's supposed to. However, and this is so important, in every one of the alcoholics, they found it in the spinal fluid. Now, they know we have a gland that fails to function. Either it breaks down by the use of alcohol or never functions. In my particular case, I firmly believe it never worked. I was alcoholic from drink one. But some people have good drinking time and then all of a sudden go across this line. They liken the gland that fails in our body uh, a great deal to the pancreas and the diabetic. Now, once this gland fails to burn up the alcohol, you'll be an alcoholic the day you die. And there's no way in the world that you can change that. They don't know, unfortunately, as of today that I know of, what the gland is. They think it may be part of the pancreas. They think it may be part of the adrenal cortex gland. But they've never come up so far as I know today with what gland it is that fails. But suffice it today to say there's a gland in our body as an alcoholic that fails to function. Therefore, it will when we take alcohol in any form, it will throw it into our bloodstream, from our bloodstream to our spinal fluid, from our spinal fluid to our brain. And the first part of your brain that's affected is in the front. It contains the eye care factor, and that's sedated immediately. That's why one drinks too much and a thousand aren't enough. Now, why isn't that enough? Why isn't that enough knowledge to come to, say, one AA meeting and find out the nature of your illness? 
and then it let us give you some instructions and you go home and you follow these instructions and everything will be fine. You do that in any other disease. For 23 years I worked in pharmacy and we used to have people come up to our counter that had been diagnosed as having diabetes and they'd have two reactions. Either they were crying or they were angry. But after we talked to them a little while and they were instructed on how to use their medication or their insulin, they would pretty well accept it. In a couple of weeks they'd come back and they were going about their business. Why can't we do that? Why isn't the knowledge that we have an allergy of our body, a gland that doesn't work, that if we drink it'll drive us crazy or kill us, why isn't that enough? Because we have a part of our disease that no one else ever has. The medical profession doesn't understand it. God knows our family doesn't understand it. And God knows we don't understand it. And it's called the obsession of the mind. And really, loved ones, that's all we can take care of. We're not a drying out clinic. We don't tie in a chair. Sometimes you may have to be hospitalized. But the only thing really you have to do on your own is stay away from that first drink one day at a time. But you must change the obsession of the mind. And the obsession of the mind is described in chapter 3 better than I can. The great obsession of every abnormal drinker is that some way, some way, someday, we're going to control and enjoy our drinking. The delusion is astonishing. Many will pursue it into the gates of insanity and death. And I happen to be one of those people that's pursued alcoholism to the gates of insanity and death. So I know what I'm talking about. This obsession of our mind must be taken care of. The e-book says if you're still under an obsession, two things are happening. Number one, you have not been feeling to fully concede to your innermost self that you're an alcoholic. And two, you have not been willing to wipe away the particular past. So if you still have an obsession to drink, ask yourself, have you failed in these two things? I'd like to skip over my drinking, but I am a book woman. And when I tried to do it myself, I failed. And so I must tell you in a general way what I used to be like, what I'm, happened, what I'm like now. See, I don't like to hear drunkologues. You don't have to teach me how to be crazy. You don't have to teach me how to vomit. I'm a past master at vomiting. But I have to qualify in a general way. So I will tell you that I drank for 19 years. From the very first drink, I was alcoholic, knowing what I know now. I was a very sick drunk. I'm like the guy who says I unswallowed a lot as the years went by. Um, never drank successfully. Never drank a beer on a hot afternoon or a cocktail before dinner. I always drank alcohol to take me from where I was someplace else, any place else. I look back now and I know I was never comfortable in my own skin. And so when I had alcohol, I think I used it as a medication. For 19 years, I drank periodically, I would say. Every time I drank, I got drunk. But the last four and a half years of my drinking work was chronic. I drank the clock around. I was never drunk and I was never sober. I ended up weighing 82 pounds. I was suffering from malnutrition. My lips were split and bleeding at the corners. I had vitamin deficiency bumps under my neck. I was totally insane. I was unemployable. I couldn't drive my car on the freeway. I had two daughters and a husband that I was barely able to take care of. I couldn't arrange my hair. I couldn't buy a dress by myself. I was a total basket case. Now, I really wasn't, but I had convinced myself that that's what happened because of my early training. I had no idea that I was an alcoholic. My capacity was extremely small. Uh, I had a caricature in my mind of what an alcoholic was. That's a woman in a bar with a lipstick all smeared, and she's soliciting for a drunk, 
Her kids are home, the house is filthy, and her kids are hungry. That's an alcoholic woman. Now surely an alcoholic man is laying in Skid Row on Main Street in L.A. with wine bottles and heels in his shoes and big wine sores. Isn't that an alcoholic man? I drank two and a half years longer than I would have had to had I not had this horrendous picture of what an alcoholic was. Thank God for AA. I had two sisters, one two years older, one nine years younger. My oldest sister was a radio singer, junior champion skier, and a model, and thoroughly adored by my mother. When I was nine years old, a baby sister was born, and uh, my mother didn't want her, made it very obvious she didn't want her, and I became an unpaid babysitter for this poor little child. And so I got lost someplace in the middle there. Um, I don't know. I used to say the reason I thought I was an alcoholic is because I was a middle sister. And then I heard someone say they were an alcoholic because they were the oldest and had all the responsibility. Then someone said they were an alcoholic because they were the youngest and they got spoiled rotten. That blew my excuse right out the window. But I think I'm an alcoholic because of my reaction a great deal to what happened as a middle sister. But anyhow, I was born and raised in Reno. My grandfather homesteaded uh, Reno and built the famous courthouse and many of the schools. And we came down to California, my husband and I, in 1947. In 1948, this was about 1948, maybe late 47, we went home to Reno to the first Christmas gathering. Now, my mother had been writing to me about what was happening with Evelyn and, and giving her hell, and I thought, Shit, I'm glad I'm out of the way. She's finally pounding on Evelyn because everything was Evelyn. She was dressed like a princess. She got everything. And now mother's writing to me and telling me all the things that Evelyn's doing. When I got home that Christmas, I couldn't believe my eyes. Here was my talented, beautiful Evelyn that I walked in her shadow and adored her, she was developed cirrhosis of the liver. Her stomach had swelled to the size of a nine-month pregnancy. She's wearing dirty blue jeans and a maternity jacket, and she's running the streets of Reno like a bum. And I'm totally horrified. And I said to my, my brother-in-law, for God's sake, can't you do something for her? He said, we've tried everything. We've hospitalized her. We've taken her to a psychiatrist. He said, Dottie, if you don't think I've done everything, I even went so far as to call a bunch of people called Alcoholics Anonymous but they can't help her because she doesn't want help. Now, that's the sum total of anything I heard about AA. And so I got kind of scared. I thought maybe my problems were not that uh, it wasn't because I didn't have enough money. Maybe it wasn't because uh, uh, we didn't have enough money, say, to buy uh, flannel pajamas for the children when it was cold. Uh, maybe all the things I'd blamed my problems on, maybe it was because I was drinking too much. That was the only time it occurred to me. So I made up my mind that I would go back home just before the New Year's of 1950, and I would go on my last drunk, and then I wouldn't drink anymore. I really thought that it was, you know, that was it. So on the New Year's holiday of 1949-1950, I got terribly drunk, as I usually did, and I had food on my lap and got up and forgot it was there and spilled it all over the lady's carpet and always made a complete fool of myself, never meant to. The next morning, when it came time for me to get out of bed, it was the only morning I couldn't get up. And my typically Al-Anon husband, when I asked him to bring me something to bed, went out and got a bottle of old Ram's, Ram's Head Rye. I think he left a ram in it. And brought it to me and spoon-fed me this god-awful... Did anybody ever taste rye whiskey? Oh, God, even as an alcoholic, that's terrible. And that was the only time I couldn't get out of bed. But dear ones, the month of January of 1950 was the most hell I have ever gone through. You see, I was the only time I started to withdraw. For two years, I'd get up in the morning and take four or five shots down and vomit them all back up before one would stay. When one would stay, I was fine. I'd get my kids off to school, clean my house, do my wash. I was functioning. 
As I tried to withdraw, I went into blackouts. I went into hallucinations. I had become a tremendous secret drinker. And as I'd go to take a drink, I'd see people with their hands up like this looking in my window. And so I'd go around and pull all the window shades down and take a drink. Go around and pull them all back up. I was a pretty tired drunk when I got here. You've got to know that. And then I saw a foam coming through the hardwood floors. And I would come to myself and four hours had gone by and I had driven to the grocery store. And I was absolutely terrorized. One time I came to in a grocery store and I had just started to wash. I thought at 10 o'clock in the morning. I went back to see if the washing machine was through and it was a grocery basket half filled with groceries. Four hours had gone by. I was fully dressed. Terrorized me. The man told me in the grocery store later that I screamed like I was having some kind of a fit. And I ran out of the store and... Uh, of course, went to the liquor store and bought a bottle. It's the only thing I ever knew to do when I'm that frightened. And I went home and uncorked it and took a drink. I looked around. The wash was done. It was all hung up. The house was clean. And I didn't know until I came to you what had happened. I thought, I'm losing my mind. I had such terror of going crazy. And I knew then that I had lost my mind. And I came back in the other room and sat down. And I went back to the kitchen a few minutes later to get another drink. And the bottle was almost empty. And another couple of hours had gone by. I started down the hall to see what time it was. The clock was in the bedroom, and I saw this phone come out of the hardwood floors. Now, I'm sure you've seen the astronauts when they went into free float, you know, how they bounce all over the ceiling. I did that long before they did. I really did. I stepped on that phone, and I hit the ceiling and the sidewalls, and I remember screaming, My God, help me! And the next thing I heard someone say is North Hollywood AA Clubhouse. I don't know if I called it dialed it but I asked the operator I don't never know see God planted the seed that month ahead from, for my brother-in-law and I surely didn't think it was for me so I don't know how I got there and the woman answered the phone and I said how do you know if you're an alcoholic and she said it's for you or your husband I said it's for my husband of course <laughs> and then I started to cry and blubber as only an alcoholic can cry and blubber and she said don't kid me it's for you isn't it and I said yeah she said I'll come right out and I said you can't come right out I don't want my husband to know I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and she told me later she thought she had a drunk and a ding-a-ling on the phone. And she said wonderful words. She said, all right, I'll tell you what, lady, I'll come out in the morning on one condition, that you're not drinking, because if you do, I'm leaving. I will not talk to a bottle. So I said, fine. So when my husband came home that night, now you've got to know I'm not dramatic. You understand that, don't you? No dramatics in me. And I told him I had something very important to tell him. And I set him in a chair with his back to me. And I said, I'm an alcoholic and called AA. And his shoulders start to go like that. And I said, oh, God, please don't laugh at me. And he turned around with tears coming out of his eyes. And he said, thank God. I was just getting ready to sign the papers for Camarillo State Hospital. Can you imagine what would have happened to old Dottie Shore if they'd locked me up with the fear I had of being insane? I think that was the first miracle that set forth for me. And so I was to meet my sponsor the next night at, at North Hollywood. And when I went over to North Hollywood and parked my car, like Alabama told you, the North Hollywood Clubhouse is an old Episcopal church. And when I got to the door, and I'm expecting to see people like my sister, you understand, with big bloated faces and swelled bellies and dirty clothes. That's an alcoholic. And I got to the door, and I looked in, and I saw people just like you, and I thought, oh, I'm in the wrong place and started to walk away. And a girl came to the door and she hollered, she said, hey, can I help you? And I said, no, I don't think so. 
And she said, honey, are you an alcoholic? And I said, yeah. And she said, oh, you're so welcome. I put a lump in my throat today. And she put her arms around me. And she saw, I started to cry. And she started to rock me. And she petted me and she said, honey, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. My God, what prophetic words. What prophetic words. She didn't even know what a prophet she was. And she took me in. And I was to meet my sponsor. And the girls gave me their card with their name on it. And I was so impressed. I couldn't believe. I couldn't believe that I was in, in a bunch of alcoholics. And so we sat down and the meeting started. And they had a birthday cake celebration, which they always do on Thursday night. And I had sat in an audience for many years now and watched my sister get up there and get cakes, I mean roses for singing, cups for skiing, and modeling, and I had no claim to fame. And they have kind of a stage, not as high as this, but a stage-like thing, and I'm sitting down in the front row, and I thought, gee, all i got to do is not drink for a year, then I'll be up there getting my cake, and you'll be down there, and I'll have my night on the stage. So I kind of thought I went dry that night. One of the worst things that happened, and I have to really pray for people who do this, and that's to give terrible drunkologues. I think that's so unfair. I think we are the only people in the world that can help an alcoholic, and I think we can kill him. And that man got up that night and he talked about drinking fifths a day in sanitariums and jails. He'd been in prison. He'd had convulsions and he'd had DTs. He told off five cars and lost his family, and he went on and on and on. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my God. I scared myself into this thing. I'm not an alcoholic. I didn't drink that much. I didn't drink that long. I didn't do those things. But, oh, I loved you people from the minute I met you. And I thought if, I, if they find out I'm not an alcoholic, they're going to make me stay away. Now, a lot of people hate to come to AA. I was so afraid you were going to make me go because I did not think I was an alcoholic. And so I broke two of the biggest rules that we'll ever have. Number one, our life must become an open book to one other human being. Not take your inventory at group level. Don't be a compulsive confessor. But one other human being must know all about you and it says secrets will kill us. And I broke both of them. Well, in 1950, you've got to remember, it was like a men's stag group. There were entirely more men there than there were women. And they, women were kind of tired of hearing the men talk and they found I had this gift of gab. Now, you wouldn't have known I had that if I hadn't told you, would you? <laughs> And so they put me on the circuit when I was 49 days dry. And I spoke from Bakersfield to San Diego and from Riverside to Santa Barbara and any place in between. I went to 365 meetings and more that first year because I went to Sunday noon lunches, Monday noon brunches, and my weight came back on and I became employable three months after I got sober. My family quieted down. I would have told you that I was happier than I'd ever been before in my life. You see, I didn't know what happiness was. I thought happiness was excitement. Happiness is a quiet thing. It's a byproduct of right living. And I was in a perpetual state of excitement. The A book tells us we're used to three things, excitement, anxiety, and depression. Peace of mind and a quiet heart we know nothing about. And the adrenaline was shooting through me. And I spoke everywhere. I had babies, more babies at North Hollywood than anybody else. I was around and in the program, working 40 hours a week, taking care of a family, and absolutely out of my mind of what I thought was happiness. And the year went by on the wings. On February the 8th, 1951, I stood at the podium at North Hollywood. Now, in the meantime, people started telling me how wonderful I was, and I began to agree with them. They started quoting me. They started misquoting me. People started fighting to be my baby, Dottie Shore's baby. 
And I loved every minute of this. Now, had I taken an inventory in any of that first year, of course, I didn't take an inventory because I'm not sick like you dingalings. I'd take your inventory, but not mine. And I didn't know my deep-seated problem. I thought my deep-seated problem was to keep alcohol, drinking. Many of you people here today will think alcohol is your problem. Dear ones, alcohol is not your problem. It's a sick answer you found to your problem. Because when you put the cork in the bottle, that's when you know you've got a problem. And it is a very deep truth that alcoholism is only a symptom of a deeper-seated problem. And too many people don't get into their deeper-seated problem. And when they don't, they become compulsive readers, or they become addicts, or sexually promiscuous, or compulsive buyers, or they'll pick up an ulcer, or a migraine, or colitis, or high blood pressure. We have an emotionally induced illness. Emotions turn in on self. And that's why the program is much more than just putting the cork in the bottle. That's why we must practice these principles in all of our affairs. So you don't have to teach me how to live drunk. But oh my God, teach me how to live in reality, comfortably. Not white knuckling it, not gritting my teeth, and one day at a time going through this. But teach me to be in my skin, comfortable, and face reality, and thank God that's what the program is. But to go back, it was just... It was just something wonderful. I just loved everybody. I thought I was the greatest teacher in the world. I had a, been given a wonderful gift. I have a photographic memory. At one time I had total recall. Boost took care of that. And I memorized pages of the book and I quoted it. I can quote you the book. But see, head knowledge alone is not enough. The book tells us that. And I deeply impressed everyone. My sponsor thought I was the greatest thing she ever had. She used to call me her little well alcoholic. And I loved it. And so the year went by, and on February the 8th, I got my cake. I had rehearsed my acceptance speech for six months. Oh, you should have heard it. It was wonderful. I got more presents. They were going to need a needle birthday, and they patted me on the back and told me I want to fly once again, and again I agreed with them, and I thought, my God, this love affair we got going is the best thing in the whole world. And then the postnatal blues set in. Now I got another year to go for my big night. Besides, I'm tired. The adrenaline starts to leave. And I thought, well, besides, I'm an old-timer. got a year now. I'll break my meeting pattern. So I broke my meeting pattern. I started going on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Well, if Thursday night came and there was a good television program on, or it was too hot, or it was raining, or it was too cold, I wouldn't go. Now, I'd go back there on, say, I'd been there Thursday. I didn't get back till the following Thursday. Do you know something? Not one person rushed to that back door of that North Hollywood club and asked him where I'd been. I thought, those ungrateful bastards. They have used me, squeezed me dry like a lemon, and now they're throwing me away. And so this went on for about three months. Now, a lot of things happened that time. I was going to Azusa one night in a driving rainstorm. You know, there is such places as Azusa in Southern California? Yes, there is. And the rain wouldn't, the windshield wiper wouldn't take the rain off. And when I got there, it was a place about half as big as this, and there were six old people sitting there. And I thought, gee, they arrived late at this meeting. The meeting began, and there were still six old people sitting there. And I thought, how dare they ask the great Dottie Shore to come to speak to six old people? So after that, when they asked me to speak, I'd ask them how big the group was. It was a big group I went. It was a small group. I sent one of my babies. You've got to know who you're talking to. I hope you're impressed. <laughs> I was so impressed I got drunk. Ego got me drunk, folks. Ego is spelled E-G-O. 
edging God out. Eagle will get you drunk faster than the next drink. I went to a meeting on June the 10th. It was a beginner's meeting on a Tuesday night. And the leader said, is there any newcomers in the place? And you know 15 people raised their hand. And you know what he had the nerve to say? He said, you're the most important people in the room. I thought, like hell they are. You lose that new drunk, now you haven't lost anything, but you lose an old-timer like me. So I left angry. And on the way home, my sick little mind says, I know what I'll do. I'll get drunk, and then they're going to be sorry. Now, I know you ladies have gotten drunk at your husbands, haven't you? And you guys have gotten drunk at your wives. Well, I'm not going to get drunk at Al. I'm going to pick the whole North Hollywood group. And boy, are they going to be sorry they're going to lose this old-timer. So I went to Total Fantasy, and my head said, I'm going to get sick, I know that. But I could see Al coming home and finding me drunk. And I don't care. I'm not going to hide the bottle. If he doesn't like it, I'm telling him to go to hell. But he goes to the phone, he calls North Hollywood. Oh, what a fantasy. And he's saying, this is Al Shore, and my wife Dottie is drunk. And they're saying, oh my God, no. And they get a caravan of cars, and they come over to 12 Stepney. And when they get there, they make amends, and I forgive them. <laughs> And we kiss and we make up and, and uh, they take me in their arms, they take me back to North Hollywood and I'm a newcomer again. What a fantasy. <laughs> so it was all planned. On June 11, 1951, I got up that morning and I cleaned my house. I wasn't going to have them call any slob, you understand. And I put on my earrings and my makeup and I put on clean underwear in case something happens. You know, something always happened when I drank. But I didn't drive. I walked to the liquor store, bought the same old half pint. Now, don't forget, I'm 16 months and three days circuit speaker. Old timer. It's going to be different, right? Wrong. I came home on a bottle. Now, for about the last two and a half years of my drinking, I was not a fancy drunk. I want you to know that. My husband, you know, if you want to, any of you people are still planning on drinking and you want to hide a bottle someplace, just ask an Alan on. Alanons will find hidden bottles faster than anybody in the world. They're like ferrets. They come in and they find it. He found the bottle no matter where I hid it. Now he'd dump it out, hold me at arm's length, then I'd have to get up the next morning with these dry heaves, get the kids off to school, get him out, pick up my nickels, dimes, and quarters, and walk to the liquor store for a drink. Now you know I had to, to, to uh, hide my supply. So one day, about two and a half years before I came to AA, in trying to find a place, I looked up and I saw vinegar. Did you know vinegar and bourbon are the same color? So I took the vinegar out of the cupboard and poured it down, poured my whiskey in the vinegar bottle, put it right up in the front of the cupboard. Now, Al would come home and find me a little drunk, right? He'd push that vinegar bottle back and forth all over the place. Never did find it. Never did find it. But now, don't forget, I'm 16 months and three days circuit speaker. It's going to be different. I went home, took the vinegar out of the cupboard, poured it down the sink, poured my whiskey in the vinegar bottle and took my first drink out of the vinegar bottle. Not so much I changed. And dear ones, when that whiskey burned my throat or someone had gone like that and slapped me out of a dream. If I'd been sleepwalking, it couldn't have been more violent. And that's the first realization I had that I'd taken a drink. And I thought, oh my God, what have I done? There goes 16 months of sobriety shot to hell. And I was terrorized. And I thought the one thing I wanted all my life the most important thing, I've blown it. I've thrown away AA. And I was absolutely terrorized. And I stood there and I waited. I don't know what I thought was going to happen, but I, I, I was terrorized. And I waited and nothing happened. And I thought, oh, hell, I knew all along it wasn't like those drunks over in North Hollywood. 
So I walked out in the kitchen to get what I thought was going to be my second drink. And what I tell you now is told to you by my husband and my sponsor. Al was an outside salesman, and there was no Al-Anon in those days. And he, but he knew, from going to meetings and everything, that my thinking had changed. And I'm saying things like, I might as well be drunk as the way I am. Those SBs don't appreciate me. So he decided to come home and see what was happening. And he heard me screaming a half a block before he got to the house. You talk about it being a progressive disease? I had never had that. I never had the screaming memes before. He opened the door and came in. I was on the front room floor, beating my heels on the floor until I almost broke the bones in my feet. I had dry heaves, so I broke a blood vessel into my esophagus and I'm vomiting blood. I had dry, I'd rest, so I broke the blood vessels in my eyes. My eyeballs had hemorrhaged. He tried to get me up off the floor and put me on the couch. I went totally limp. I remember, loved ones, in 1951, there was no care unit. There was no hospitalization. There was no, nobody in the, in the medical profession would touch us with a 10-foot pole. I took a girl to the doctor one time at the hospital and the verge of the DTs. He told me to get that lousy drunk out of their waiting room. But at any rate, he was so terrorized, he remembered that two blocks from where we lived was a medical center. And there were seven doors along a sidewalk. So he came, just ran out of the house, didn't take the car, and got to the first doctor's office. And when he came in there, the office was full of people. He went up to the receptionist, and she was busy. So he went past her into the doctor's examining room. You've got to know how terrorized he was. The doctor told me later he never saw anyone as terrorized as Al was. And here's a man laying on the table with a sheet on him, and Al comes up and grabs the doctor and said, My wife's been sober 16 months. She's drinking. She's dying. For God's sake, come with me. And the first of many miracles was to set forth. The doctor didn't say, get the rescue squad, get out of my office. How dare you do this? Uh, you know, call the, medic, call the rescue squad or anything. He didn't say anything. He just picked up his black medical bag and ran with my husband two blocks back to my home. And do you know why? He was an alcoholic. One of seven doctors, the only alcoholic in the building, and the only one would have come. If you call that a uh, coincidence, that's a complicated way of spelling God. When he got to me, he put the cesscope on my chest. He turned to Alan and he said, I'm sorry, Mr. Shore, we're too late. There's no heartbeat, no pulse, no respiration. So on June 11, 1951, I pursued alcoholism to the gates of death and over. And the only reason I'm here today, friends, is by the grace of God. The grace of God is literally a free, unearned, unmerited, unwarranted gift. And we who are sitting here today with one hour of sobriety are here by the grace of God a free, unearned, unmerited, unwarranted gift. When Al got hysterical, the doctor told me later he didn't think it would do any good, but in order to try to quiet him, he took a needle about that long out of his bag and shot me directly in the chest cavity, gave me artificial resuscitation, and truly, by the grace of God, my heart started beating. Let's take it back. Supposing Al had been one minute late, the doctor had waited two minutes. They could have brought my heart back, but my brain had been gone beyond repair. No one can ever convince me that there isn't something that God had planned for me. Because on June 11, 1951, I should have, have cashed it in. The sum amount I had that morning was three straight shots of whiskey. Is it how much you drink? Is it how long you drink? Is it what brand? See, God was so good to me. Because had I gotten out of that caper, and I'd have had my little... A little scene where they come over and made amends and loved me and all that and taken me back. Every time I didn't like what you did, I'd have gotten drunk at you. But I learned in one quick sweep that it isn't how much, it isn't how long, it isn't what brand. It's can you guarantee what's going to happen when you take your next drink? And see, I can. For me to drink is to die.
Thank God I know that. And from that day forward, I have never been a blues fighter. If I had been taken into surgery and had it cut out of me, the obsession and the desire, I couldn't be more free. But oh, my problem just began. See, my problem's a living problem. And I thank God today from the bottom of my heart that I am an alcoholic. Because had I not been an alcoholic, I'm sure I would have been born, lived, and died a hopeless neurotic, running through people's lives like a tornado, not worth anything. But because I am an alcoholic and have been granted this marvelous, free, beautiful gift of sobriety, I am worth something. I'm a child of God. I'm the daughter of the king. I'm a princess. From a blob taking up space who could do nothing to somebody who's really worthwhile. And the only reason I say that is because God's gift to me was that. You take a look at Dottie Shore's life over here by herself. A falling down, stammering, stuttering, helpless, hopeless alcoholic. I'm not putting myself down. That's me. But you take Dottie Shore over here so sober with God in her. Hey, you know something? She's somebody. And so are you. I no longer think I'm no, not worth anything. I know that I am important. Because why, God, why didn't God just let me die? I went back to the doctor's office a couple of days after this thing, and he took me by the shoulders and he shook me, and he said, Listen, girl. See how long ago that was he called me girl. He said, You're as dead as anybody I've ever examined, and I don't know why you're here. But if you drink again, you'll die. And my first thought was, Why didn't he let me go? God, why I had my out. Why didn't he let me go? See, I've never been comfortable in the world. I never will be comfortable in the world. When I hear things like the other day in California, a man whose little boy was seven years old and kept wet in his bed, and his father cut his penis off and threw it down the toilet. Those are things I can't stand. I used to get drunk over those things. I very seldom read much of the newspaper. I am now in private practice. I've been in private practice as a counselor for 17 years. I must keep up on what happens, only because I must be able to converse. But see, I don't like the world out there. And so my first thought was, why didn't he let me go? He said, I was dead, so why wasn't it all over? But on top of that came the thought, there has to be something God wants you to do. So about June the 13th, I guess, 1951, I said this, All right, Lord, I don't understand why you've left me. But I promise you I'll never be too tired nor too busy to answer a call for anyone. Please use me all the days of my life till I'm all used up for your glory. And he's done just that. If you're going to pray that, you better be ready to do it. Because, you know, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are very few. And to be used by him, it, I know you probably find it hard after 35 and a half years to have me tell you that I'm still in awe when I get a call to come and speak at something like this. I truly am. I'm in total awe of it. Because for so many years, people say, for God's sake, Dottie, shut up. And you get sober and they ask you to speak. But there is something that you know what you can do. Now, they got back to AA, and oh, gee, loved ones, if you have somebody that goes out and drinks, don't stand in judgment. You can kill them. If they hadn't been so loving to me when I get back to North Hollywood, I surely to God would have died. I didn't want anybody to know. I told my husband, don't you tell anybody I drank. I was going to bluff it through. I walked through the doors of North Hollywood, and if I had a sign on me that said, slip, 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 <laughs> going on and off like a neon sign, it couldn't have been more. And so many people came up, and some people said, oh, thank God, Dottie, you're back, and well, you look so solid, and, and tell us what happened so it won't happen to us. And they were giving me all this love. And there's one guy standing over in the corner, and he hollers, hey, Shore, 
What the hell step were you working when you took that drink? Oh, how I hated him. <laughs> but on the way home, I thought to myself, what in the hell step had I ever taken? I had certainly taught them, preached them, read them, recited them, memorized them. I'd done everything with them but work them. And that's not the name of the game. But I knew there was a missing link. And I said to my husband that next morning, when I woke up that next morning, by the way, I'd been sedated all night long, I had a, a vanity with a big mirror at the foot of my bed. And I sat up. My God, you should have seen what I saw. My face was swelled. My lips were swelled. My eyes had no whites, just red slits. I looked, my God, on three drinks, that could happen? You talk about it being a deadly poison. And it just absolutely startled me that I would see anything like this. And I thought, my God, you know, how could that have happened? And I said to Al, why? Why, honey? Didn't I go to meetings all the time? Didn't I 12-step? Didn't I speak? Didn't I pour coffee? Didn't I uh, talk on the phone by hours? Why did this happen? And he said, I don't know. But out of every seeming evil, the Lord will bring good. And see, there's nothing evil except the way we look at it. I was thinking about Nell and her beautiful Christopher. That looked like an evil thing. In fact, when she said it, I thought, oh no, how could that happen? When she wanted that baby so bad. But out of that seeming evil, look at the joy and the good that God had brought out of that child. So out of the seeming evil of me drinking and dying, after I wanted this program so well, I had to wait to see what the answer would be. Well, I found out for one thing that I didn't even know the nature of my disease. I thought I had an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. And that was it. And yet our book says we have a threefold disease. We have an allergy of the body, an obsession of the mind, and a spiritual illness or a soul sickness. And that was my missing link. That was my missing link. If there'd be one thing, one underlying thing that caused my alcoholism, it was a soul sickness. Now, I'll tell you that I was born and raised a Roman Catholic, and if there's Catholics here, don't think I'm talking against the church. I'm going to have to tell you about a practicing alcoholic priest who sent me to hell for about 19 years. Poor man died drunk. There was no A in those days. But he was a very frightened man, and he kept telling me that every time I committed a sin, I was nailing another nail in Jesus' hand, that uh, everything was hellfire and damnation, and he was terrorized himself. There was no doubt about it. He made me say thee and thou and pray in a certain way. Uh, that was the way you're supposed to do it. And um, so that's the way I grew up. Now I ran away and got married when I was 16 to a boy 17 to get away from my mother and out of the impossible situation of these two sisters. Well, the kid didn't have a job. I didn't get away very far. We went home to live with my mother. But I was pregnant two months later, and this young man wanted me to have an abortion, and I was totally terrorized at that. So I went ahead and had the baby, and I was, I was really happy the, 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 year, the nine months that I carried that baby. I felt like I was doing something important. And I made a vow. It wasn't going to be my mother's baby, my sister's baby, or my husband's baby. I guess I thought a natural conception would come back. It's going to be all my baby. Well, she no more had jumped out of the womb while I was praying. She'd grow up and get out of my hair. And he wouldn't hold her. He said she was more like a sister than a daughter. And so the marriage was just so bad. It was, not, it was a fiasco. And so I didn't have to go home. Like I said to my mother, I was there. I just kicked him out. And in, in Reno, you get a divorce. You file one day and get it the next. Now, I was outside. My baby was about 13 months old. I was filling her up and down in the buggy. And the priest was walking up and down, reading his office. And he came over to me and he said, we're going to have that kid baptized. And I said, not till I get married again. 
You know, you don't tell a Catholic priest that. I just thought you'd like to know. <laughs> and he said, you can't get married again. If you do, you'll be living in adultery, and any child of that issue will be illegitimate. So I pulled myself up in my big self-will, and I said, I don't care. I'm going to get married again. And he said, you're excommunicated. Well, dear ones, if God had called me and said, Dottie, this is God, you're excommunicated, it couldn't have been more, more official. See, a priest was God as far as I was concerned. So from that day until long after I came into AA, I walked the face of this earth like a lost soul. Alan and I got married. He adopted my oldest daughter, and he and I had Sandy. And Sandy was sick for seven years of her life. She had a defective gallbladder that wouldn't empty, and she had high allergies. Now, in those days, there was no antihistamines, no antibiotics and she'd had bronchial pneumonia every time she turned around and the doctors told me I would never raise her to adulthood how many times do you think I went to the funeral in my mind how many times do you think I went to a morgue and picked out a little pink casket a little white dress and little gold shoes and milked this neurotic morbid imagination until it almost set me crazy and I'd sit in the chair at night with Al asleep and her there and I'd drink to wipe out this thought that God was going to kill this child and punish me for living in adultery. I think it had a lot to do with me drinking. At any rate, coming to AA now, and I'm trying to work these steps. See, I know for me to drink is to die. And if I drink again, I will die. And if I die, you know, then I'll meet God drunk. All I could think about was meeting him drunk. So I'm trying to work the steps, but I come to the third step. But I used to say it this way, Our Father, Art in Heaven, Hallowed Be Name, King, Come, Living, 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 Hail Mary, Full of Grace, Lord is with Thee, Blessed Art Thou, Lord. Jesus! Doesn't that sound like it? I didn't know what I was saying. And for 16 months I said the Lord's Prayer. But you know what I'm doing? I'm saying, Our Father, Art in Heaven, when are we going to be at the coffee room? When are we going to go someplace and eat after coffee? When are we going to have ice cream or donuts? I didn't even know what I was saying. Well, during this week, one night, I stand up to say the Lord's Prayer with you people, and I hear the words, Our Father. And if somebody had put a plug in my ear, I heard nothing else. You went on with the prayer, but all I heard was, Our Father. I thought, My God. You didn't say, My Father. They didn't say, Your Father. They said, Our Father. And God loves you people. I knew that. Because I could see God in your faces somehow. I could see love come out of you. And I thought, You said, Our Father. Maybe I could have a father. And I thought, Oh, that's too familiar. Now, I had a, a, a sad relationship with my own father. My mother was a matriarch, dominating woman, and my father was just kind of a very happy-go-lucky man who didn't—he didn't even—I didn't even know him. So I didn't have any, any mother or father relationship. And I went home. I think it was about the sixth day, and I'm praying this prayer. And out of my memory bank came something I hadn't thought about since I was about ten years old. I was raised next door to a girl whose mother died when she was born, and her grandparents were raising her. Now, I was over there more times when I was home, and later they told me they knew I was neglected, and I, they loved having me, and I lived practically next door. And she used to call her grandfather Daddy Dick. Now, this old man was not a successful man, but he was a loving, tender person, and he used to grab me and put me on his lap, lay my head on his shoulder, and he'd kind of pet me, and he'd say, You know, Daddy, if you ever need anything, just ask old Daddy Dick. I hadn't thought about this in so many years until this one night and I thought maybe I could have a daddy God maybe I could climb up in the lap of daddy God and put my head on his shoulder and he would say to me if you ever need anything daddy just ask daddy God and yet still it grabbed me in the gut that's too familiar that's blasphemy you can't talk to him like that and so on the seventh day 
My sponsor used to tell me to either open the AA book and put my finger down and start to read, or the Bible. And this was a spiritual thing, so I opened the Bible, and glory to God, the words that came off that page were these. You who are human parents full of sin, if your children ask you for a piece of bread, would you give them a stone? If they ask you for a fish, would you give them a serpent? How much more will your heavenly Father, there was the words, grant to those who believe in him? And in six days, seven days, I had a daddy God. Now this daddy God, I wish I had time. I wish I had the next five hours to tell you how wonderful he is and the miracles he's performed in my life. But it's enough to tell you that he came into my life and performed a miracle. He changed me inside and out. Not only physically, but spiritually, emotionally. He did a whole job all over. And so from that time on, I started to get well spiritually. And the book says, as you get well spiritually, the physical and the emotional will follow. Now during this week too, I meant to tell you, that in praying and trying to meditate, God told me he wasn't a Catholic. And I thought that was the most wonderful news I'd ever heard. <laughs> but God is not a Baptist and God is not a Methodist. You know, God's not religious. God is spiritual. Religion is a man-made way of worshiping God. And I'm not talking against any religion. Because in the years I've been sober, I've become a born-again Christian. I go to church of my choice and I read the scriptures. But can you imagine what would have happened to little old Dottie Shore if she'd have got to that door at North Hollywood that night and they said to her, I'll tell you what, honey, you accept Jesus as your Savior and you'll get sober? I would have died. And I'm not saying Jesus couldn't do it because he could. But see, the old ideas had to go. Had to erase all that bad programming. And in his infinite wisdom, he knew that. And he came to me very gently as a daddy God, so that eventually I threw the baby out with the bathwater. I threw Jesus and everything out when I threw the church. And little by little, I was able to bring him in as Savior. And so I've come full cycle. And I got well spiritually. I no longer have a soul sickness. I think the most wonderful thing about this is that out of all the things that have happened to me since I've gotten sober, and I've had more reasons to get drunk now than I ever did before, but out of every seeming evil, that God has brought something wonderful. The first thing that went down is my oldest sister died. She blew apart from sources of the liver. I went home to Reno to a drunken Irish wake. And everybody in my family got drunk. My mother fell off the chair. And when they passed the whiskey and I, re I refused it, they called me a hypocrite. And yet I had the serenity prayer. I liked what you said about it. I said that prayer... I think for three days, a thousand times, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. I tried for three years to help my sister, and she would have none of it. The last words she said on this physical plane were, for God's sake, get me a drunk, a drink before she died. And I came back to California. A few years later, my oldest daughter becomes a full-blown addict, alcoholic. And she's smashing her life away and taking her little boy down the drain. And my sponsor says, you've got to take that child. You can't, you're contributing to the delinquency of a minor child. And everybody in AA was telling me, why didn't I take him? And it was hard for me. My kids had grown up, and I, I was afraid. But finally I knew that I had to do that. He was sucking his thumb. He was wet in the bed. I had him with me one weekend, and his toenails had grown at the top of his toes. And his heels were split and bleeding from not being cleansed. And I'm not putting my daughter down. That happens when we get sick. So finally I decided I would do it, and I had to kidnap him because she could have had me arrested for kidnapping. And I'll never forget Mary Poppins. I lived to be a thousand years old. I sat through five showings of Mary Poppins at the Grauman's Chinese Theater 
He thought I was the best grandma that ever came across the pike. You know that, don't you? And so the next day, they served her with the guardianship papers. The process server told us that when he served her, he had to help her write her name. She was so drunk and so, so out of it on drugs. And he said he went and sat in the car and he watched. And she walked out of her apartment, down the front steps and down the sidewalk, and disappeared off the face of this earth. Good reason to get drunk, isn't it? I never heard a word from her from that time on. I didn't know she was dead or alive. And so I'm spoon-feeding my grandson little bits of this program. He stops sucking his thumb. He stops wetting the bed, and I put him in school. And I think I'm doing pretty good. But I start waking up about 3 o'clock in the morning gasping for breath. Can't get my breath. I thought, my God, there's something wrong with my heart or my lungs. So I went to the doctor. He examined me fully, and he said, Dottie, there's nothing physically wrong. It's emotional. You better get to a therapist. Well, I've never had any trouble with therapy. Because years ago... Uh, Bill Wilson said in a grapevine, if you have a broken leg, don't repeat the 12 steps over it. <laughs> and if you have emotional disorders, go for help. And I knew I had an emotional disorder. But somehow or other, I, I started crying when I left his office. I thought, how come this could happen? And in the meantime, I got to tell you, I became a member of Al-Anon. And God bless them. They saved my sanity. Anybody that has alcoholism in their family, every alcoholic is going to either have an addict, alcoholic, or a delinquent kid. Avail yourself of this God-given program of Al-Anon. They helped me so much. Well, this man named Father Ken, his wife is my E.E. baby. He's an Episcopal priest. And I found myself inadvertently, which is a complicated way of spelling God, on the way over to see him. And I said, Father Ken, what do you think is wrong with me? And he said, it's obvious you're in a panic. What are you afraid of? And I started to cry. I said, I'm afraid I'll never see Anne alive again. He said, you're going to have to accept it, Dottie. You may never see her alive. And I just screamed in anguish, but I can't. He said, then go on fighting it. Well, the A book says we cease to fight everything and everybody, including alcohol. The only fight I ever gave was alcohol. I went home that afternoon. I got on my knees, and I said something like this. All right, Lord, I don't understand how it can be your will. If it's your will, Anne has to die. I surrender to you even unto death. Just give me the strength to go through it. And loved ones, it was like a load went off my shoulders. I finished out my day, went to bed that night, and slept all night. First time in eight months without waking up. Got up the next morning, was about my business at noon, the phone rang. It was my daughter. Isn't that odd? That's God. And she didn't get well right away, and I couldn't bring her home because I had Greg. When she got well, she called me to come over and make amends. Now, Greg was afraid of her. He didn't want to see her for a while, and we played it real cool. And she started to make amends, and I said, Ann, there's no reason to make amends, honey. I lost you to death a long time ago. The fact you're alive. She said, what do you mean you lost me to death? And I explained to her that day what had happened, and she said, what day was it, Mom? And I told her, and she says, oh, my God, do you know what I was doing that day? And I said, I have no idea. Well, it seems like she was going into Tijuana, Mexico, over to San Diego and over the border, and if she could buy a thousand of anything over there. The, the border was wide open. So she was getting her drugs out of, out of Tijuana. And just before she went through the last time, the Hells Angels had been picked up going across the border. And they had drugs in every pocket. So the feds closed the Tijuana border down. And when Ann went in the last time to get her drugs, the pharmacist wouldn't give her anything. I told you I weighed 82 pounds. I'm five foot two. My daughter is 5'7". She weighed less than 70 pounds. She was more dead than alive. And she came back into the valley. She lived very close to where we, we lived. And she uh, took towels and blankets and blocked the doors and the windows. Took the last of her drugs, which was a huge overdose. And she turned the gas on and laid down to die. And that afternoon they turned the gas out for lack of payment. 
Isn't that odd? My daughter is now close to 21 years sober. When she was five years sober, I gave my grandson back to her. In less than six months, he's a full-blown addict, alcoholic. He's now been, because he has an, ex uh, an example of his mother and grandmother, he's now been about 14 years clean and sober. Is this hereditary? It is passed on in the genes. They know that. Uh, it, it may skip a generation, but you're predisposed for alcoholism. And I think as soon as we recognize that, we won't be quite so shocked. If you have a relative that comes down with diabetes, you're not too shocked. You're pretty sad, but not too shocked because it's in the genes. Well, my husband went into partnership with an alcoholic partner. I begged him not to. Please, Al, don't do that. He said, honey, anybody that drinks too much, he thinks an alcoholic. And I said, it takes one to know one. My husband had been in Al-Anon for 15 years by this time. He and I spoke all over Southern California. Most people don't know this, but my husband started the Alateens. He was intergroup chairman of Southern California, the very first intergroup chairman. He was speaking at a meeting, and he saw these two young boys sitting out on the front porch of Pasadena. And uh, he said, what are you guys doing? He said, well, mother's in Al-Anon and dad's in AA, and we decided we'd have our own little meeting. And he sat on the porch and talked to them, and from that very beginning started the Alateens. And Al and I took those kids all over Southern California. He started the central office of Al-Anon in Los Angeles, the nail announcer. What he did was work all the business end of Al-Anon. After he went in business with his alcoholic partner, in less than nine months, we're down the tubes. We lost everything. Went through bankruptcy, lost the car, lost our savings, our home. We lost everything. And the day we walked out of the bankruptcy court, my husband never attended another Al-Anon meeting as of today. And, of course, that will separate a family, I believe, just as surely as alcoholism will. And he got sicker, and he got sicker. He became a compulsive worker, and he became a compulsive sleeper. And he worked 16, 17, 18 hours a day and slept. And he used to play all kinds of games, like not feeding him until he'd take a shower, because he worked in auto parts, and the sheets would be filthy. And I'd say, you take a shower, you can have food. I looked at it one day and I thought, I'm treating this man just like a child. I've loved this man since I was 14. I went with him before I married that first boy. He went to California during the Depression and we lost each other. And when he came back, we found each other and married again. I've loved him for a good long time. And I loved him too long to hate him. And I was hating him. I had to walk away. But out of that evil, too, has come some good. I was working in a pharmacy, making very little money. When I left him, I had no money. I was eating a can of chunky soup a day and coffee. And thanking God I had that. And I started praying to God. I said, Lord, when I'm 65, they can retire me. And I can't live on Social Security. And I don't want to live with my kids. Somehow get me out of this pharmacy. Because, you know, you dispense nine out of every ten prescriptions for Valium. And it's hard when you're an alcoholic in AA to see all this destruction going on. But because I didn't know what else to do, and it's so easy to surrender when you don't know what to do, I said, Lord, I place my life in your hands, truly. Just help me to maintain myself. And a couple of weeks later, one of my A babies called, and she said, Dottie, my mother died and left me a small inheritance. And you have such a natural talent at helping people. I want you to go back to school and become a counselor. And I said, I can't do that. I couldn't take your money. And she said, would you do it for me? And I said, yes, I would. So I went over to UCLA. I'd always kept my calendars because I travel about 1,500 miles a month with my own gasoline. I can take it off my income tax. They took my 18 years of, of uh, speaking as an uh, internship 
and they filled in my courses. And I worked 40 hours a week and went to school for three and a half years at night. And I came out of there 17 years ago with my certificate, and I've been in private practice ever since. I can support myself. I can have a lot more food than chunky soup. I've got a nice apartment. I've got a lovely car. I travel all over the United States. And I'm as completed as I can be. I don't think any person is complete without a mate. And I don't have a mate, but that happens to be what God wants right now. Because uh, outside of that, he's filling my life beautifully. I have friends now in parts of the United States I never knew I'd have. And every now and then I, work, I come into a loved one like Alabama. I always call Alabama for my birthday. I'll say, Alabama, my birthday's coming up on Thursday. And she'll say, how long have you been sober now, honey? Y'all. <laughs> and we talk and we see each other. But this is a wonderful way of life. And supposing it hadn't happened. Supposing my neuroses hadn't broke out into a disease called alcoholism and driven me to my knees. Well, I never would have found sobriety. I never would have found God. I never would have found peace and joy. I would never have done anything to help anybody else. And it would have been, it would have been a nothing. I could have been born, lived, and died a hopeless neurotic. You know, when my sister died, my mother called me at midnight and she said, and she loved this girl. Oh, God, she dressed her like a princess and just lived vicariously through her. And she called me in a great heartache and she said, Dottie, Evelyn died tonight. Thank God it's over. Now, my sister had three horrible hemorrhages six weeks apart. Source of the liver is a terrible, terrible, long, painful death. And I said, yes, thank God it's over. Now, three and a half years ago, my youngest sister, nine years younger than I am, died of alcoholism. Again, I tried to help her. Couldn't do it. I went home to the funeral, not home, to, but up to San Jose where they lived. And she had three daughters, late t 20s and early 30s. And the middle one, Kathy, got a terrible, terrible beating emotionally. And she was loving her mother one minute and hating her the next. And I said, Kathy, you're going to have to bury your hatred with your mother or you're going to make a victim of your children. And so she said, well, I'll, I'll bury it in the casket. Will you go up the casket with me the last? I don't, I don't believe in open caskets, but I said, I'll do anything. So she went up at the last, and after everybody had gone, she put her hands like this. She said, Mother, I bury my hatred with you. And she turned to walk away, and she looked back, and she said, You bitch, you'll never hurt me again. Now, loved ones, my youngest, oldest sister's epitaph is, Thank God it's over. My youngest sister's epitaph is, You bitch, you'll never hurt me again. We're all going to have an epitaph, whether you're alcoholic or non-alcoholic. What's her epitaph going to be? Well, poor thing, she just couldn't get to meetings, couldn't get honest, didn't like the speaker, just wanted to do it by herself, couldn't accept the fact that she was an alcoholic. I don't know what your epitaph's going to be, but I know that I'm going to have one. And of course, I'm not dramatic. I want you to know that. But if one of them says, thank God it's over, and the other one says, you bitch, you'll never hurt me again, then pray God one day at a time with sobriety and with your love and with God's help. May my epitaph say, Dottie Shore, well done, O good and faithful servant, because I've tried. I love you, AA. Thank you for my life.